Uh, I used to coach high school soccer, and I wasn't, very, I wasn't particularly good at it. Um, is Gino here? Gino's here. I think I saw him earlier. Gino, I wasn't very good at it. So Gino's my, my soccer master back there in the back. I mean, he knows soccer so well, and I'm just like, but I wasn't very good at it. But I do remember coaching high school soccer that there would be these, these big games you'd come into. And so soccer's a unique sport in many ways. But one of the ways that it's unique is that you, you as a coach really have to prepare your players because there's not a lot of opportunities during the course of a game to change a game plan, right? You have limited substitutions if you're wor- working at the highest level. You have no timeouts, and there's no such thing as a timeout in soccer. Uh, you have halftime. So there, there are all these things, and the clock is running continuously. It's just you have to prepare your players for the game. And so before big games, I remember giving these last instructions, really wanting the guys to get the game plan, right? Keep it in mind because I knew I was going to send them out there and that I I was kind of out of control at that point. And so I remember that. I remember that, wanting them to get the lesson at the end. The players needed them. They were important for them. And we're looking at just four verses today in the Gospel of Luke, just four verses, but they constitute the final things Jesus shares with his disciples before he is betrayed and he is crucified. This is Jesus' final lesson to his disciples during his earthly ministry. This is the last lesson that he teaches them, and it's important. And so we want to look at it, we want to learn from it. Let's find out together what that lesson looks like here in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35. I'm going to read it aloud. You read along with me. It'll be on the screens, or you can open up your Bible or turn on your Bible on your phone or whatever. Just make sure you have your phone on silent because, you know, I know how that can be. Sometimes you turn it on, and all of a sudden, Max McLean is reading the Bible instead of Jason Abbott. And and that's a shameful thing for me because he's so much better at it than I am. But here we go. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 35, here's the word of God as it's recorded there. A last lesson. And Jesus said to them, his disciples, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And the disciples said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, it is enough. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. I'll invite you to pray with me before we begin to dig into God's word together. Will you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these these last few instructions that you give to us. They're important. This last lesson is important for us to take in and to learn. And so uh, we ask right now that you would stir up in us your Holy Spirit. You would open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to what you're saying. And uh, that we'd be able to apply this lesson and live uh, our lives into the future in a, in a transformed way. 
by your power, by your grace, by your love. In Jesus Christ, amen. So we are at the tail end of the last meal that Jesus shares with his disciples. They're still in the upper room together. They're probably picking at the the last few morsels of uh, that supper that they had just shared together. And as Benjamin explained last week, Jesus has just given the 12 disciples a corrective on the nature of greatness. Jesus has said, you think of greatness in this way, but really greatness in the kingdom of God looks like this. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks like sacrifice and service for the least among us. So that's all just taken place. And here Luke records a last lesson that Jesus teaches after that. And it has three parts. And so we're going to use these three parts to dig into this lesson. The first part is this. There's a point about what is past. There's a point about the past that Jesus makes here. And then there is a point about the future, uh, what's to come that Jesus makes. And then finally, there's a point about the plan of God. So a point about the past, a point about the future, a point about the plan of God. And so that's our outline for this morning. Let's dig in. A point about the past. This is the first thing we want to look at. Uh, When I was young, my best friend's mom had to put up with a lot whenever, you know, we would spend the night over at his house or just get into trouble generally. We were, we were a smidge subversive and we stumbled into our fair share of trouble as kids. And so uh, consequently, she has a bunch of dirt on me and, and her son as well. And so I never would put her, I never list her as a reference, never put her down as a reference for anything. Right, Because she could tell some stories. And nowadays, whenever I'm in Missouri and I see her, I know I'm in for trouble when she suddenly decides to reminisce. Whenever she brings up the past, especially when my children are present. Maybe I'm telling one of my kids to use an inside voice. Or or that, you know what, it's time time for bed. And then I'll hear those five dreaded words from my best friend's mom. Jason, do you remember when? Jason, do you remember when you and Shannon were so loud together at school that they stopped putting you in the same class? I.e., you're really telling your kids to use an inside voice? Or, Jason, do you remember when you and Shannon snuck out all night long and never went to bed? I.e., really? Your kids have a bedtime? You know, and so she, she's using these lessons, these instructions, these remembrances to, to point me backwards to something that she thinks will help me to move forwards as a parent. She's directing my attention to the past, in this case, my past mistakes, so that I will know better, she thinks, in the future how I should direct my children as they're growing up. Now, that's a negative example, I think. At least I feel that. I feel that it's very negative when she does that. That's a negative example of what Jesus does here in an overwhelmingly positive way. They're very opposed to one another. They're very different than one another. Jesus is doing this, but he's doing this 
in a great and beautiful way. He uses his disciples' past experiences in order to prepare those disciples for what's ahead, for their future, as his followers. He doesn't shame them by bringing up their past. Instead, Jesus encourages them to be prepared and to be realistic about their future. He says it won't be easy. There are difficulties ahead. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. That's in our second point. I want to stop here, though, and think for just a second how important the past is to our future. If we're Christians, God is pleased often to take what's in our past and use it to direct us into the future. We need to think deeply about this if we're followers of Jesus Christ. We need to think about how God wants us to remember the past in order to move ahead. And it's not something I'm making up. It's not like some aha moment I had when I was reading this text. This is something that God is pleased to do and use with his followers throughout the biblical narrative. Consider just a few examples. Times when God commands us to remember what he's accomplished for us in order to strengthen our faith as we move forward. I'm just going to give you some examples. Jesus and the disciples are observing the Passover feast in this passage that we're looking at today. And I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. This very meal was a memorial meal, a remembrance meal, enshrined in Israel's annual rhythms so they'd recall God's past saving work and anticipate his future saving work. God says, look to the past and remember what I did there and know that I will save in the future. Or you can think about the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. The book of Deuteronomy is a remembrance book or, if you will, a remembrance sermon. After 40 years of wandering about in the wilderness because of their rebellion against God, the people are about to go into the promised land. And Moses prepares them for this entrance into the promised land by preaching a farewell sermon. And how does he do that? How does he encourage them? when they're entering into the promised land, by reminding them of their past. By looking back, by recounting what kept them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, their sin, their breaking of God's commandments, their faithlessness towards God, inability to trust Him. It's a warning from their past to set them up for success in the future. You can trust God, and if you do trust God, you will enter into the land. So move forward, trusting the Lord. That's what Moses is doing here. Look at the past, Israel. Now look to the future. And finally, consider the book that we're studying right now, the book of Luke. It's an orderly, historical, investigative account of Jesus' life and ministry. And why did Luke write it? Luke tells us why he writes this. Luke chapter 1, verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke says, this is what's happened in the past. Be certain of these things as you move into the future. God gave us Luke so we'd remember the past and live with gospel certainty in the present and into the future, encouraged by the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ for us. In a sense, that's true of the whole Bible, really. This is what God has done, the Bible says. This is what God has done, the Bible tells us. Now live accordingly into the future. 
before we move along, ask yourself a question here. How are you reminding yourselves of Christ's provision and grace for you in the past in order to strengthen your faith in his provision and grace for you in the future? How are you looking to your past and the work that God has done there in your life so that you can follow him faithfully in the future? I know a couple of people in this church who are pleased to write down ways that God has provided for them so that when times get tough, when things are bad, when they face difficulties, they can look back to that list and say, you know what, God... He's gotten me through so much. He's provided for me so many times. He's blessed me in so many ways in the past. I can trust him with this too. I can trust him into my future. I know a graduate school professor. He was one of my professors at seminary. And he loved to pick pennies up off the ground whenever he saw them. Uh, And he told us one time why. It was during... Graduate school, and and if you're a professor, man, you go through a lot of really expensive graduate school. And he was like, there were times I didn't know I was going to pay for anything. I was going to pay my rent. I was going to buy a meal. But God always provided for me. I would pick pennies off the ground then because that's how valuable pennies were to me. And so he continues to do it to remind himself of how God had provided for him during that lean time in his life so that he'd know that God will also provide for him in the future. And because... I'm kind of a jerk, but like to have fun. I would get pennies and I'd go drop them outside of his office just to watch him pick them up. And because his joy was so great and he would just beam when he picked those pennies up off the ground. So some of the students and I did have a little bit of fun with him in that way. But, but the, the reality here is, and the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, in what ways are you? remembering God's past love to encourage your your faith concerning his future love. Again, this is a biblical thing. This is something God is pleased to tell his people to do throughout redemptive history. Well, after reminding the 12 about their past success, Jesus makes a point about their future. And I want to read the first two verses together so that we can see this connection between the past and the future. So here's verse 35 and 36. Look at them with me one more time. And Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. That's the past. He's like, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, we remember. He said to them, but now... Let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. That's the future. Remember the past? Look to the future. This seems like a strange logic here. What is Jesus teaching these disciples? What's the connection between God's past miraculous provision and an apparent Lack of future provision. It seems like that's kind of what Jesus is saying. Like, you know, he provided for you in the past, but you better prepare better for the future because he's not going to provide there. But that's, that's not what I think Jesus is teaching here. As is so often the case, Jesus' meaning is revealed if we keep this text in its context. Remember, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it probably again. A text without a context 
is a pretext to misunderstand the text. A text without a context is a pretext to misunderstand the text. We don't want to misunderstand the text. We should always allow the meaning of a particular passage to blossom naturally out of its contextual soil. So let's re-examine this seemingly strange little teaching from Jesus keeping its context in mind. And there are three things, I think, at least three things that are important here if we're going to understand what Jesus is teaching. Here are the three things. First, Jesus is the rabbi and his disciples are the students. Now you're like, so what? I mean, obvious. Well, here's the deal. Uh, The rabbi-disciple or teacher-student relationship in Jesus' day was not at all like the the teacher-student relationship that we think about today. The goal back then wasn't to to allow your student to meet his or her unique individual potential, right? To be all that they could be. The goal was actually to craft the student into the likeness of the teacher. That was the goal. And so even Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6 verse 40. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, that's not like, be more of yourself. Be like your teacher. So, so that's important for us to keep in mind here. What is the goal of the rabbi-disciple relationship? To be like the teacher. That's the first thing. Second, Jesus has just taught them through his recrafting of the Passover meal that his body must be broken for them. And his blood must be poured out for them, for their sins. Jesus just taught them that he's the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He just taught them that in order to be like their rabbi, they will need to be servants and they will need to sacrifice too. He's taught them that greatness is service like his service. So we got to keep that in mind. That Jesus has just shown them what he's all about. And he's the rabbi. Third thing. The disciples have just had an argument concerning who is the greatest. And they're not thinking of service. They're not thinking of sacrifice. They're thinking about glory. They're thinking about their own glory. They don't look like their rabbi here. They don't look like their teacher. So keeping those three things in mind, consider again what Jesus says here. He points them back to the overwhelming success they had previously experienced when he sent them out. He says, do you remember that? And of course they remember that. They're thinking, we healed people. Uh, People welcomed us into their homes they let us stay there during the night. They'd feed us. And they're thinking, you know, we were rock stars. And we were amazing. We were great. That's what they're thinking. That's their mindset when Jesus directs them to the past. Do you remember that? Do you remember how God provided? Yeah, everything was provided. We were on top of the world. And then Jesus says, yeah, guys. It's not going to be like that in the future. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. 
You're going to need to be ready for adversity. You're going to need to be ready for danger. You're going to need to be prepared for betrayal and heartache. It's going to be difficult. Make ready. The world is not going to think you're rock stars. Do you remember the past? Prepare for the future. Christ Jesus teaches them in the book of John this. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15 verse 20. You want to be like your teacher? Then be prepared to suffer. Uh, Some have wondered why exactly Jesus tells the 12 to arm themselves. Uh, Is he advocating violence in this passage? But the last verse of today's text answers that question with a resounding no. I mean, if you're reading this, again, in its context, I don't think you could in any way, shape, or form think that Jesus is advocating violence when he says, you know, get a sword. What's going on here? He would be a terrible, let me just say this, he'd be a terrible military strategist. I mean, he'd be awful if he is advocating for violence or violent rebellion here. Because the disciples come to him, what do they say? We got two swords. And Jesus goes, that's enough. That's bad preparation as a military leader. So that is obviously not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what he's teaching. Rather, Jesus is using this list of equipment to teach the disciples about the nature of their their future mission. Namely, that it will be difficult and dangerous. Namely, that they need to be prepared for that. He's not saying be violent. He's saying be prepared for violence. Be equipped to handle violence. Be ready for that against you. And I wonder if you think about following Jesus in those terms. If you don't, you should. Uh, This is is what Jesus teaches following him is like. It's difficult. It's not always going to be easy. You're not always going to be loved. You're going to face opposition. You're going to face people who won't like you. You're going to be asked to lay down your desires for Christ Jesus. You're going to be asked to sacrifice your time for Christ Jesus. You're going to be asked to, to risk being ridiculed and maligned in the name of Jesus. He doesn't say, get ready for a vacation when you follow. He doesn't say, get ready to be rock stars when you follow me. In fact, contrary to that, he says, get ready for difficulty. Get ready to be ridiculed. Get ready to be hated. Do you think about following Christ Jesus in those terms? Again, if you don't, you should. Jesus says, be prepared. Be prepared. Before we move on to our last point, let me direct your attention to something that encouraged me that the Bible is real history. It's true history. It's not made up stories. These aren't fairy tales here. And to see it, just think about the disciples here and then think about the disciples throughout the biblical narrative. Um, Especially, I can think about all of the patriarchs and and the whole Bible. Like You think of the people of God in the whole Bible. But, But think about the disciples in the Gospels, okay? Think about how pathetic... 
they are. How weak, confused they often are. Who'd make their future leaders look like that? I mean, just think about that. These are the, these are the leaders of the early church. These are the f- first people for this fledgling organization who are leading it. Who makes their leaders look like that if they're making up a story? Who would follow guys like this? Look, friends, all kinds of Christian legends developed in the early church. Stories of, of hu- superhuman saints. Uh, there was a, I, I did some work and was looking into some of these legends. There was a guy named St. Dennis, for example, in the third century. And Dennis was the bishop of Paris and was apparently an extremely talented preacher of the gospel. And he was beheaded for preaching the gospel. Um, and Dennis then pulled an energizer bunny and kept on going. He picked up his head, preaching the gospel, and walked six miles preaching the gospel before he finally gave out. That's the story. But that's a myth, right? That's not real. There's no weakness in St. Dennis. There's no vulnerability in St. Dennis. This is not at all what you see when you look at the disciples in the New Testament. That's the kind of leader that a man or a woman makes up for themselves. Somebody who has no fear, no weakness, is able to preach the gospel with their head severed from their body. That's made up. But that's not what we see in the Bible. That's not what we see in the disciples. The disciples are fallible, weak, real people, just like you and me, just like us. That's who they are. They're like us, not inventions, not creative fictions. And they're the precise type of people that God is pleased to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth through. We should encourage you. People like you. People like me. God is pleased to use weak, broken People, God is pleased to use, to to do incredible things. But not because we're superheroes. Not because we're like St. Dennis. But because God is great. And he is strong. So I believe the Bible. I look at it and I read it and I say, true history. These are real people it depicts. Not legends, not superheroes. Well, uh, let's move finally to the last part of Jesus' lesson. This will be brief. It's a point about the plan of God. A point that Jesus makes about the plan of God. Jesus makes another eye-opening statement about himself. He says this in verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here's the scripture from Isaiah. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Then Jesus says this, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, I've been arguing in my last few sermons that Jesus makes a bunch of claims and does a bunch of things, which only God should claim and only God should do. And I've argued that this demonstrates that Jesus clearly understood himself to be God in human flesh. Now, this statement about himself doesn't quite reach to that level of of claiming divinity but it's darn close because what jesus here is doing is saying you know the word of god from centuries past it pointed to me it finds its fulfillment in me i'm the one that it was talking about 
normal people shouldn't say such things. But then again, Jesus isn't normal. He's the central figure in history. That's what he's saying here. History is about him. It points to him. He's the main character. Jesus isn't normal. Here's the point about the plan of God. It's total fulfillment. It's total fulfillment is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' work was hard. It was difficult. Work that only he could accomplish. Jesus bore the wrath of God against sin. You could not bear that. I could not bear that. Jesus put death to death on our behalf. I can't do that. You can't do that. And he did this at the cross, which is, remember, less than 24 hours before him. It's right in front of him. He did that work. Work that you and I could not do. He did that on the cross of Calvary. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the bad guys. He was numbered with the criminals. Who are those criminals? You and me. He was numbered with the criminals, the transgressors, so that we wouldn't have to be. That's the plan of God. That God bore the penalty for us. That's the plan of God. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And through faith in Jesus Christ, all the generosity of God, all the love of God, All the greatness of God, all the glory of God is poured into our lives so that we can live fully and beautifully and mended, reconstructed, resurrected lives for his glory and honor and praise. That's the plan of God. That's what Jesus points to here. That's what only Jesus can accomplish. Trust in him. Trust in him. You bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. And we thank you for this, this final lesson, this last lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples. He teaches us. Every moment of Jesus' life, oh, he made it count. Every word that he spoke, is of eternal value. And we're so thankful that we can dig into it here and hear your voice in it. I pray that we would not leave this day unchanged, but we would be a transformed people living in the freedom that only Christ was able to accomplish and offer. And we live as a people who trust in him. Amen.